Taking me aback, that's not the expect, uh, that was not what I was expecting. I was thinking more in the category of like tomatoes or like, you know. Um, hi. Any Bob Ross fans in the house? Yeah. <laughs> okay, Bob Ross. Any, like, I know that we had some immediate responses, but does anybody, anybody else out here remember or uh, have, have an understanding of who Bob Ross is? Any fans? Bob Ross, he was the host of a show called The Joy of Painting that aired on PBS in the 80s and 90s in America, in Canada. Um, if, if you don't remember him, uh, let's, let's take a look. This is him. Anybody starting to remember him now? You, you remember this guy? How could you forget that hair? <laughs> this delightful afro uh, and his soft-spoken voice. Do you remember what he used to say? He used to paint the happy little trees, the big fluffy clouds. I mean, gosh, this guy is iconic. His, his ability uh, to just help others paint, right? That was his goal, right? Through the joy of painting. He wanted to help others understand the joy of painting, and he did that on his show by unpacking what it took to make a piece of art such as this, this beautiful mountain, lake, tree, cloud. There's a lot going on. There's a waterfall in there as well. Anyway, we're not here to talk about the quality of the art, but there is something to be gained, I believe, from Bob Ross as an individual and the way that he brought every person through the joy of painting. And, uh, you know, it's, I know it's a little bit of a, of a weird example, um, but Jesus is sort of like Bob Ross. Not just the old, like, paintings that we saw in the 70s where Jesus had, like, like a big beard and, like, flowing hair. No, like, they didn't just look similar. So what, what Bob Ross did, which is really interesting to me, is that he took something that, to many, would be considered really, really challenging. Something that might be some, uh, an idea of, of, uh, of, a, of an action that you don't think that you could do, which is painting, right? And he simplified it down to its most core elements, right? These happy little trees, the big fluffy clouds, these core elements, so that any of us, right, anybody who can hold a brush can follow along with Bob Ross. That's his thing. Anybody who can hold a brush and can buy the paint can follow along with Bob Ross. Jesus is a little bit like that. We're going to talk about that a little bit more today. But Jesus, I believe, is telling us today that he is painting a portrait of victory with your life. That's a victory over sin, victory over shame, over anxiety. Jesus is painting that with and through your life. And we're going to talk about that today. Will you pray with me? 
God, we just thank you for today. Um, Lord, uh, words are cheap. Lord, I ask that you would just, uh, by your spirit, just move even now in this place as we just seek to understand a bit more about who you are and about who you've called us to be. God, we just humble ourselves right now. Um, we ask that you would teach us something, each and every one of us. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you were curious why there was a, a, an interesting reaction when I began the sermon today, my name is Andy Cherry. I am the worship and creative arts pastor here at Bayview Glen, which means that I'm typically not preaching. I think this might be payback for all the times I talk too much during worship. Um, but I'm here today, and what we're going to do is we're going to continue in our journey um, I think it's safe to call it an odyssey at this point, um, through the Gospel of John. If you've been tracking with us, we have spent the last almost two and a half years, with a couple little awkward detours here and there, going through the Gospel of John, all the way back to January of 2017. And here we are today in chapter 16, verse 25. If you have your Bibles, let's read along. These are the words of Jesus. Though I have been speaking figuratively, a time is coming when I will no longer use this kind of language, but will tell you plainly about my Father. Jesus in this passage, excuse me, when he's talking about speaking plainly, he's referencing the metaphors, he's referencing the parables that he's used up to this point in his ministry. He's talking about how when the, the disciples asked him, can you explain the kingdom of God to us? He didn't say it is right? Do you remember? He said, it is like. He's using these metaphors. He's using these examples to help us understand. He's saying, there's going to come a day soon when I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm going to speak plainly. I'm going to speak plainly about my father. I have to think in this moment, um, we know in Jesus's posse, is it, can we call it a posse? Um, in his group of friends, in his group of followers, there was definitely um, some type A people in there. You know it. Right? There are some accountants, there's some tax collectors. These people are about numbers and are about facts and they're not about feelings as much. No shade being thrown at the, the numbers people in the group today. Lord knows us artistic types desperately need you. <laughs> but Jesus is saying, I'm not gonna talk figuratively anymore. I'm gonna talk very, very specifically and very, very plainly about my father. And I have to imagine these type A people in the group these people who are just desperate for him to get to the point. Every time he says, it's like they're wishing that he said, it is. All these people are just like a huge sigh of relief. Finally, finally, enough with the stories, enough with the metaphors, enough with the parables, and he's going to get to the point. He's, when we ask him about the kingdom of God, he's not going to say it is like a mustard seed that, that is planted in the ground and grows into a beautiful tree and birds rest on its branches He's going to tell us actually what the kingdom is like. He's not going to use these metaphors anymore. Thank God. Literally. But Jesus does this stuff for a reason, right? Jesus isn't doing this for his health or because he likes telling stories. Jesus is doing this so, like Bob Ross, with the little happy trees and the tiny little brush strokes that he invites us into the process... Jesus is doing this to deconstruct huge theological principles, huge truths that previously wouldn't be able to be understood by our tiny little brains. You see, Jesus, being in the very nature God, holds the universe in the palm of his hands. Creation, right? 
his idea. Past, present, future, they don't mean anything to him. He is thinking outside of all of our framework. But when he uses these metaphors and when he's using these parables, what he's doing is he's using temporal language to express eternal truths. He's taking this, these huge ideas that we would definitely not be able to understand if he explained it in a way that made sense to him, and he's talking about it in a way that makes sense to us. And he does this over and over and over through the scriptures, through these stories, and, and he says, guys, it's all been metaphor, it's all been figurative, but I'm about to tell you plainly about the Father. Is there a picture in the Bible that you feel is Jesus telling plainly about his relationship with the Father? Is there a moment that comes to your mind that's Jesus no longer speaking figuratively, but now he's speaking plainly? Is there a moment? Or maybe there's an action that you can imagine Jesus not speaking figuratively, not acting in a figurative manner, but now plainly. My mind, as some of yours may have been right in this moment, is drawn to the cross. When Jesus took on the cross for our sin, what else, what speaks more plainly about his relationship with the Father than the fact that he was faithful even to death on a cross? What speaks more plainly of how he loves each and every one of us individually than what he did on the cross? Jesus is saying, I'm going to speak in a very, very clear way, just days from now. And you're going to get it, or at least you're going to try to get it. Um, because the cross is the ultimate portrait of victory. Jesus, by the cross, he, he overcame sin, he overcame death, he overcame hell, he overcame the grave. And as we're reminded throughout Scripture, because of the work of Jesus on the cross, that very same power now lives in you and lives in me. That victory that Jesus won on the cross that day over 2,000 years ago, he shares that victory with us. He begins to paint that victory in our life because we, too, can now have victory over sin, over hell, over death, and over the grave. Is that good news for anybody today? I'm sorry. That's good news for me. As we move on in the passage, um, verse 26, uh, Jesus says this, In that day you will ask in my name. I'm not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf. Pastor Lucas did a great job of unpacking that passage uh, last week. And if you want to catch up on uh, any of our past sermons, you can grab that right on the website. All of our past sermons are going to be available. Um, so I don't need to unpack that today. And moving on to verse 27, um, Jesus says this, know the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. Do you know that God loves you today? I mean, do you really know that? That might be the one thing you need to hear today. Not, yes, God loves the collective you, us. But God loves you specifically. He loves you as an incomplete work of art. Maybe there's some colors on your canvas that you're not so proud of. You don't have to remove those for Jesus to love you. And maybe today, the little piece of victory that you need to gain is fully understanding that God loves you. 
not for anything you've done right. And he doesn't love you any less for anything that you've done wrong. Let God, through his love, begin the painting of victory on your life by letting you know and you internalizing the fact that God loves you. That's it. You may feel a thousand miles away from God today, but you're not. God loves you. So we move on to verse 28 here. And, and this, this, this makes me laugh. I know it's become like really cliche to, uh, to kind of bag on the disciples um, for being idiots. Because, well, like a lot of times they're idiots. Um, they're literally walking with Jesus. And they just never get it. And I know it's become cliche to, like, to bag on them. Um, but the truth is, we need to see them reacting in the way that they react. And we're going to see that here in this passage. We need to see them respond in the way that they respond because it's the way that we do, too. Verse 28 says, uh, excuse me, uh, then just, verse 29, then Jesus' disciples said, now you are speaking clearly and without figures of speech. Now, now we understand. Now we can see that you know all things and that you do not even need to have anyone ask you questions. This makes us believe that you came from God. Do you kind of feel, do you sort of feel like the, the disciples are blaming Jesus for them not understanding? I kind of feel that way. The disciples are like, you haven't explained it well enough, Jesus. You haven't said it plainly enough, Jesus. But now that you say you're going to speak plainly, now we understand. Now we get it. Now we know the whole picture. It's kind of like, you kind of feel them like, it's like, are you straining your arm, patting yourself on the back like that, guys? Like, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a little funny, and it made me laugh this week as I was thinking about it. How many times do we congratulate ourselves <laughs> prematurely? It's almost like, uh, you ever known somebody um, who laughs at a joke when they don't think it's funny? <laughs> or, they don't, or they don't even understand the punchline, but they laugh at it anyway? Do you know what I'm talking about? It's like you tell a joke and somebody's like, <laughs> what? <laughs> and it sort of feels like that with this premature celebration. They're kind of patting themselves on the back, thinking that they understand, thinking that they have the whole picture, and sort of blaming Jesus in the process, saying, you didn't explain it well enough, Jesus. Your metaphors confused us, Jesus. And so Jesus, knowing that they don't have the whole picture, right? Remember, we're days away from the cross here. Days away from the cross, they do not have the whole picture. They do not see clearly. They do not understand completely. How could they? So Jesus responds, do you? Do you believe? Do you really believe? Do you now believe? Jesus is saying in this moment, don't admire the painting before the master says it's done. Don't step back and say that this is a completed article. This is a completed piece of work. You don't have the whole picture. And don't admire the painting until I tell you that it's done. You don't have the whole picture. You don't have the full perspective. And he, he does that because when we kind of prematurely celebrate things, like I, I, I can't tell you how many times I've done this as a young man on my journey with Jesus, you learn just one thing. You learn one thing, and all of a sudden, you just want to peacock over to somebody and tell them everything you learned, not, because of, not for their benefit, but because you learned something, and you want them to know that you now know something, right? It's this like, I got it. 
I can't wait to tell you all about how smart I am, how enlightened I am, how much I've learned. This might be literally just me, but can somebody please let me know if that, has anybody ever done that, right? Prematurely celebrated, uh, this, this attitude of spiritual pride that we can have in ourselves, where we think that now we understand, and everybody should be so grateful for all of my knowledge. <laughs> no. We don't admire the painting until the master says it's done, because it can get awkward, right? Just like the person who laughs before they understand the punchline. It can get awkward when we prematurely celebrate. Think of this example. I'm a, I'm a fan of the NBA, not uh, the basketball, right? You know what I'm talking about? NBA, the Raptors, Los Angeles Lakers, right? Anyway, I unfortunately am a fan of the Charlotte Hornets um, because of where I'm from. This means that my future is filled with tribulation and sadness. One of the pundits said that the hornets are on a treadmill of mediocrity. That, that's a hard thing to grasp as a fan. But anyway, I'm a fan of the NBA, and I'm going to move this because it's about to get wild. Last year, uh, it was the playoffs. You guys know it's the postseason for any sports fans. The Boston Celtics were playing the Philadelphia 76ers. Um, this is an old rivalry, right? It goes back to the 70s and to the 80s, to Larry Bird, to Dr. J. I mean, these, this is an old, these, these teams, right, even before these players were born, have like a long-seated resentment and competition with one another. So it was the postseason, game three of the series, of the conference semifinals. Boston had won the first two. So Philadelphia, going home to play their first game, was down 2-0. If they lost this third game, guys, this is going to be an almost insurmountable deficit to come back from. This is a must-win game. So we're in fourth quarter. Game three in Philadelphia. 1.7 seconds left on the clock. Intense. Philadelphia was down by two points. Remember that. It's important. Two points, 1.7 seconds left on the clock. These are the moments, if you like sports or if you've ever even seen a movie, <laughs> this is the moment where legends are made. You can feel the tension in the room. You can feel just this sense of something amazing is about to happen. Well, and it did, and I'm about to tell you about it. So Ben Simmons, one of the star players, for the Philadelphia 76ers. He has the ball. He's going to inbound it, okay? 1.7 seconds left on the clock. Marco Bellinelli, he's over here. Marco Bellinelli is a journeyman vet with a proven knack for hitting big shots in big moments, okay? 1.7 seconds left on the clock. Ben Simmons says, break, let's go. Marco jets Bellinelli. He runs across the court. He gets the ball. Remember, two seconds left. Philadelphia is losing by two points. He gets the ball, and he runs to the three-point line, down by two. He turns around, shoots the ball, falling out of bounds. It was amazing. A true spectacle of poise and athleticism. Falls out of bounds. All in under two seconds, the ball goes up. You could feel it. 
you could feel the collective breath of the crowd being held, waiting for what happened next. Was it going to be ecstasy or was it going to be tragedy, right? It's this tension. The ball goes up. The buzzer goes off. The shot goes in. The crowd goes insane. Pandemonium erupts in the arena. People lose their ever-loving minds. If you've ever been in an event like this, you know it's chaos. People are running around. They're high-fiving each other. Yes, yes. Hugging strangers. Calling their mom. It's like, I'm sorry for everything I ever did. I love you. It is a moment of true unity and bliss in Philadelphia at the Wells Fargo Center. The announcer on TV, he let us know at home that the shot, because Bellinelli's foot was on the line, was not a three, it was a two. The game was not won, the game was tied. It's all well and good, it happens all the time. That very, very crucial piece of information was unfortunately not relayed to whoever was in charge of the confetti at the arena. <laughs> in a truly cringeworthy and embarrassing display, this game had five minutes of overtime left to play, and the confetti of a victorious team began to fall on the arena. If you like, like The Office, you know, for like the awkward moments, this is, this is your sense of humor. Because, oh my gosh, it is the most awkward, cringeworthy thing ever. Watching them, they literally had to wait until every single flake of confetti fell onto the court before they could continue the game. It took them like half an hour to sweep it all up and then finally play the overtime period. It was terrible. It was so awkward. By that time, all of the momentum from Bellinelli's incredible shot, right? He's falling out of bounds at the buzzer. All of the momentum is lost. Philadelphia loses the game, loses the series. We don't admire the painting before the master says it's done. Jesus is like the announcer in this story. He's saying, guys, you think that you've figured it out. You think that you have arrived at this level of enlightenment that now you have the whole picture. And he's saying, wait, don't celebrate a victory when overtime's still coming. Don't celebrate this as a finished product when there's still painting left to happen. Jesus takes a moment and he gently, and he very specifically leads his disciples. And he says, guys, you aren't seeing the whole picture. Because the cross is going to come. And after that, he's like, do you believe? Moving on. Because you're going to be scattered. Each and every one of you scattered, and you're going to leave me alone. And then you're going to be alone on your own as well. The theologian and the writer of many commentaries, Ritterbrust, says, 
that the future the disciples were going to face was a permanently embattled existence. Yikes. Jesus is saying, guys, I know what you're about to face. You should probably cool it on the celebration and the confetti. You should probably cool it because, listen, Peter, it's going to get messy for you. John, it's going to get messy for you. We're not talking about a case of the weepies here, guys. We're talking about martyrdom. We're talking about a permanently embattled existence that these disciples were about to face. And so Jesus says, cool it on the celebration. Cool it on the back padding. You don't have the whole picture. Don't admire the painting until the master says it's done. But even in this moment, right, even, even if in our life we're celebrating too early and we're peacocking around, <laughs> I just love using that as a verb, I'm sorry. Jesus says, wait, it's going to get hard, but I'm with you. We're going to get to that later. It's going to get hard, but I've got the tools for you to overcome what's coming next. Jesus meets us all in those moments, whether we're experiencing the, the worst moments of our life or whether we're high on our own supply of spiritual pride. Jesus meets us gently, intentionally, relationally to say, there's a better victory that's coming. It's going to get hard, but I'm painting a portrait of victory in your life, and you're going to see it soon. I'm reminded of another uh, example of um, the Sagrada Familia, which is a basilica in Barcelona. Try saying that five times fast. <laughs> basilica in Barcelona, Barcelona. <laughs> the construction on the Sagrada Familia was began, began in, in 1882. After one year on the project, the original architect said, nope, done, not gonna do it anymore, kind of left. I guess if that's Barcelona, this is wherever he went. <laughs> he said, I'm out. One year into the project. These things take a long time, if you didn't know that. Things like this take a long time, as we're going we're gonna to talk about. In 1883, the second architect took over the project. His name is Antoni Gaudi. Antoni Gaudi made the completion of the Sagrada Familia his life's work. He spent the next 43 years of his life working on the Sagrada Familia until the day he died in 1926. This is a present day photo, by the way. Notice the scaffolding. Now, does scaffolding usually mean that things are finished or unfinished? Gosh, I sounded like Lucas right then. <laughs> no, it means it's unfinished because sometimes we don't get to see the impact of the portrait God is painting in our lives. We just have to trust that he knows the whole picture, even when we don't. Sometimes we have to be faithful to live out the story that God is writing in our lives. Even if we don't know the outcome, we have to trust that a life lived faithfully is the kind of legacy that God can use to influence generations. Whether you're 15 or you're 85, I think that message is for you today is that your legacy is a life lived faithfully. Will you allow God to share it with others? You know, we talked about the fact that Jesus was about to face the cross. Um, 
And I, and I think about the cross a lot in, in light of verse 33. Jesus says this, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. You know, for, for me, I get emotional almost every time I, I hear that passage. Um, in this current season of life, my wife and I are expecting our first child in um, now less than two weeks. So l- literally everything makes me emotional. <laughs> like, I never knew that, that diaper commercials were these, mas- these masterful works of art that just evoke such strong emotions. But you better believe, every time I see a diaper commercial, <laughs> these days, okay? That, that's me. That's me. So I, I use that to, to say that I am the kind of person who, uh, if criticism were to be lobbied in my way, you would say that I don't have emotions, I am emotions. Okay? Typical artist. But this passage, gosh, it, it makes me emotional to think about it because of this. Jesus is days away from the cross. He's days away from experiencing bar none. If, if you're listening to anything, listen to this. Jesus was days away from experiencing bar none the most challenging experience that any human would ever face. Spiritually, emotionally, physically. Jesus was days away from doing that. And still, in the way that Jesus leads us, he took a moment to be concerned with the well-being of his disciples. Jesus was about to go through the hardest thing that any of us could ever go through, and he still said, guys, it's gonna get really bad. Peter, John, James, Andrew, it's gonna get really, really bad. It's gonna be a permanently embattled existence for you guys. But what I'm about to do on the cross is showing you that you can take heart because I have overcome the world and I'm going to show you proof with the cross that I have overcome the world. I have overcome sin. I have overcome death. I, have overcome, I will overcome the grave. You can take heart because I have overcome the world. So in this moment, when Jesus, in the very near horizon, is going to be going through such an incredibly challenging time, he still takes a moment to say, I'm concerned with you to his disciples. I know it's going to get hard, and I love you so much that I want to give you the tools by which that you can overcome as well. And what does that mean for us today? It means that just like Jesus was concerned with the disciples, God is concerned with you. God is concerned with you. Your story, these little brush strokes that may be on your canvas right now. God is concerned with you. He is concerned with helping you by the power of his spirit begin to paint the portrait of victory in your life that we talked about earlier. He's concerned with helping you as a true master does learn step by step what it means to follow him. And what is he concerned with? He's concerned with our ability to now take heart. We can take heart 
because God has overcome the world. And that's what the masterpiece really looks like. It's a painting of God overcoming time and time again and by his power helping us overcome as well. In verse 33, he gives us the worst promise we ever get. You will have trouble. You will have trouble. And in, the, in, the, in, the, in this example of the disciples, this permanently embattled existence, this was real trouble, you guys. This isn't, he's not saying, you're going to wake up on the wrong side of the bed, but take heart because I have overcome the world. You're going to stub your toe, but take heart because I have overcome the world. You're going to step on your kid's Lego. <laughs> Is that the worst feeling in the world? I think it's up there. You're going to... It's not about that. You're going to have a permanently embattled existence, is what he's saying to his disciples, but take heart still. I have overcome the world, and I want to give you the tools to do so as well. What does it mean to take heart? It means to have courage. It means to choose not to fear. I was telling Pastor Lucas today that I was nervous to preach this message, and he said, well, just choose not to be nervous. I was like, okay. <laughs> Done. But you can have courage. You can take heart. You can choose not to fear because Jesus has overcome. It's the verb tense that matters, right? When he says, I have, not he will. The battle that you're going to face this week, the struggle that you're going to encounter tomorrow when you go back to work or when you go back to school or when somebody cuts you off on steals like they do every single day. The trouble that you're going to encounter pales in the comparison to what Jesus did on the cross. So you can take heart. You can take heart because he's overcome those things that you are yet to face. The power by which Jesus overcomes is not yet to come. It has come. The victory has been won, friends. And so the battle that you're going to face tomorrow that struggle that you're going to encounter, the victory has already been won. It's up to us to acknowledge that the victory has been won and allow Jesus by his power and by his spirit empowerment in us to have victory in our lives. And when Jesus says he's overcome the world, I was drawn to this, this quote by, by the author, John Vanier, in his commentary, Drawn into the Mystery of Jesus through the Gospel of John, says this, that the world in the Gospel of John has two meanings. It is the cosmos, the universe, our inhabited earth, loved by God. It also means the place of the absence of God, where love is not present and is even feared. This void of absence becomes indifference to others, fear of them, a refusal to share with others. It can become blatant selfishness, hate, greed, and lies. People locked up in their ideologies and illusions. This absence is a part of each culture, and then a part of each one of our hearts, this absence can be manipulated and filled with evil forces or filled by God. So Jesus is saying that when he says he's overcome the world, he's overcome literally the world, the cosmos, the universe. They were made by his power. And so any power, any power of evil that comes at us because of what the world is, 
He has already overcome. He holds the universe in the palm of his hands. You can take heart because he has overcome the world, the cosmos, the universe. But he's also overcome that feeling that you carried in with you today that you're never going to be good enough. That pit in your gut that says that no one will ever love you. That attitude of loneliness that seems to follow you like a dark cloud. Your depression. Your anxiety. Your broken relationships, your addictions, your thought systems. All the lies and all the hatred and all the greed that our hearts can imagine, and we have dark hearts. He's overcome that as well. And because of the power of Jesus, because of the power of Jesus exhibited on the cross, you can take heart too, because that battle, the internal battle and the external battle have both been won. On Friday... um, I was getting my hair cut. It doesn't just happen, guys. <laughs> I don't just wake up like this. I was getting my hair cut, and I was talking to the young lady who, who styles my hair and cuts my hair. And uh, in a very, like, friendly, you know, kind of way in the conversations that we have, she said, what are you doing this weekend? She knows what I do. She knows I'm the worship pastor. You know, typically I'm up here. I'm not going to, I'm not really singing, you know. But I said, this Sunday, I'm actually preaching. She said, what? You're preaching? Amazing. She's very encouraging. She's like, you're going to do awesome. I was like, thanks. I'm not so sure. (laughs) And and she said, what are you preaching about? And I'm like, oh, gosh. (laughs) Well, at this point, I've spent hours and hours reading through the text, reading through commentaries, reading books, preparing for this. And I was like, how do you like boil that down to like a conversational like one sentence with someone who maybe not doesn't even understand what you're going to say anyway? And I said, well, I'm sort of talking about Bob Ross. (laughs) She's like, Bob Ross? I love Bob Ross. She's like, I was like, what? Really? She's like, yes. Literally, I know millennials use literally too much. It's true. But this, she said, literally, this past week, I, I followed him along and I painted a picture with Bob Ross. And I was like, you're kidding me. The timing of this is extraordinary. And she was like, and unsolicited by me. I didn't say, like, what do you like, Bob, Bob, Bob Ross or anything? I wasn't looking for any sermon illustrations. I'm going to pull a Lucas here. He said to anchor yourself when you have a big point. (laughs) She said, you know what I appreciate about Bob Ross? Is that even though he was a master of his craft, which he was, right? Like, I'm not saying I'm going to buy a Bob Ross original and put it up in my living room, right? But the dude knew how to paint. He was a great painter. He was a master. And he made a living painting. Like, that's pretty cool. 
even though he was so accomplished, even though he was a master, he didn't keep secrets on his process. And for any of you guys who know people in the creative industry, athletics, you know that sometimes there's like a sense of anxiety to share your tricks with somebody else because you think that they're going to kind of step on your territory, right? If I share all of my secrets with you, then what do I have? What do I have for myself if I give you everything that I know? But Bob doesn't do that. Bob says, here's how to paint your canvas. Here's what color blue to get. Not eel blue, midnight blue or whatever it was. Here's a happy little tree. Here's a big fluffy cloud. (laughs) He invites you deep into the process and he reveals all of his secrets because he cares way more about you making something beautiful than he does about keeping his own secrets, about keeping his tricks of the trade. He cares way more about the outcome that you are going to have. Because here's the truth, friends, is that a true master, the mark of a true master is generosity in sharing their process. True masters invite you in and say, I know who I am. You learning things is not gonna take away from who I was created to be. I'm gonna share this with you. And you know that Bob was, was pretty self-assured with that haircut, right? Like, I mean, he, did, he was not a not self-confident guy. You had to be, right? But Bob invites us into the process, and Jesus does the same. He does it through the scripture. He does it through his life. He does it through the narratives that we are told, through the parables and through other examples in the Bible. Jesus invites us in. He doesn't hold anything back from us. He doesn't say, you're going to overcome, but at 80% of the way that I overcame. He says, by my power and by the power of my spirit, you're going to overcome just as much as I did. And I'm going to tell you how. I'm going to tell you how to take heart. So we ask ourselves the question today, um, and it's hard. And it should be the response to every message that we have in church but the response that we had today is to ask ourselves the question that Francis Schaeffer posed, if you know it. How then should we live? So we see this portrait of victory that God is painting through our lives. And you might feel like a blank canvas today. You might feel like your story has just begun, and that's okay. What a more hopeful place to be. And maybe today you want to take that first step of allowing God to paint the brush stroke of he loves you on your life. And that's how you begin. But God didn't paint a portrait of victory. And God is not painting a portrait of victory in our lives so that we can just stick it on the wall in our living room and admire it. So we can stick it up on the wall and say, thanks, Jesus. That was awesome. No, no. The master is painting a portrait of victory in and through your life so that you can show somebody. The work that God is doing in your life is for you. It's to heal you. It's to sanctify you. But it's also to inspire you to tell about it. The master is painting a portrait of victory with your life And your responsibility is to show somebody else. Maybe you don't know what your story is. I know that sometimes it's hard to think about things like that. 
But there's these little pictures in the scripture of God's grace that we see. Little vignettes of his kindness and his mercy showed to other people. And, and, and we can now take and see ourselves, see similar colors that God is using in our life as well. Where do you see yourself? Where do you see glimpses of your story? Is it in the prodigal son? The young man who squandered his inheritance, lost everything that he had, came back to his father requesting that he at least even be given an opportunity to live as a servant. And when he found his father, father didn't say, sure, yeah, you can come back. You can work for me. No. The father said, you are my son. You're going to come back and you're going to still be my son. He wasn't met with condemnation. He wasn't met with judgment. He was in, welcomed back with an attitude of radical grace and an invitation to be part of a family. Do you see yourself in that story? What about the woman caught in adultery? Do you see yourself in that story? Was your imperfection so on display that everybody could notice? I felt that way before. Was the proof that you are not a perfect person corroborated by lots and lots of evidence? And still in that moment did Jesus say, if anybody out here wants to throw the first stone, you're coming through me. Throw the first stone if you're without sin. Jesus put his arm in front of the woman, theoretically, metaphorically. He said, no, she's with me. Do you see yourself in that story? What about the woman who was hemorrhaging for 12 years? Hopeless, sick, despaired, but heard stories of a person named Jesus who was making people new, who was healing cripples, making blind people see and lame people walk heard stories about him and said, I know this is crazy. I know this is crazy, but I've got to try one thing, and, and this is my last resort. And so in a crowd of people, she stuck out her hand, and she grabbed a hold of the hem of Jesus' garment, and by faith she was healed. Is that you? Do you see yourself in that story? What about Zacchaeus up in the sycamore tree, feeling insignificant in every way possible? feeling like because of who he was, because of what he had done, because of what he did for a living, that he could not, the way could he approach Jesus? And also because of his stature, he felt insignificant. But Jesus said, you're significant to me. You may not feel the courage to walk towards me today, but I'm going to walk towards you. Do you see yourself in that story? What about Nicodemus, who became a Pharisee? and learned everything that there was to know about God and about the scripture. And he thought that through knowledge that he had gained a sense of enlightenment by which he could have life with God. And Jesus said, it's not about what you know, it's about who you become, and you have to be born again. Is that you, the spiritual pride that you have to lay down Is that you? What about Thomas? That could be you today. 
You don't know if you believe. You don't know what you believe. You've heard all the stories. You may have seen some evidence of God's work in other people's life. And you're like, I don't know. I just, I, I can't, I can't believe. I can't believe. And Jesus said, here's the scars. Here's the scars in my hand. Stick your hand where the spear punctured me. Maybe that's you today. Maybe you're doubting. Wherever you are on your journey, whether you're a blank canvas, whether the colors that have been painted, sometimes painted for you, are not what you want to share with others, people need to see the portrait that God is painting with your life. People need to see your happy little trees. Because somebody is going to see the same color that God is painting in your life in theirs, and they're going to be encouraged to take a step forward and say, hey, if God can overcome for them, maybe he can overcome for me. Where do you see yourself? The master is painting a portrait of victory with your life. And he wants you to show somebody. Will you show somebody? Will you show somebody what God is doing in your life? Will you take a step out of faith, excuse me, a step out of fear and into faith today and say, God, use my story for your glory. Use this painting that you're, that you're making of my life for your glory. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the reminder from Scripture today that you are doing a work in and through our lives, and we ask, God, that you would continue to give us courage to share what it is that you are doing. God, I know that it's, it's scary. I know that nothing makes us more anxious sometimes than, than, than sharing our imperfections, sharing our hurts, and sharing our stories, but God, you are calling us to do that today. So God, I, I ask for my friends in this room that that you would give us all the courage, that you would give us all the presence of mind, that you would give us the strength by your spirit to be bold as we share the testimony that you are telling through our stories. And God, I know there's people in this room today that, that because they feel like they're a work in progress, that they have nothing to offer. But God, you use us at whatever state we are in You don't ask for finished products, God. You just ask for, for open vessels to do your work. So, God, I pray that if somebody is on the fence about sharing their story today, that you would encourage them, that you'd give them strength by your spirit. And, God, as we're about to sing, that we would recognize that it's through our, our entire life that you've been faithful. Through our whole life, you've been good whether or not we've seen it, whether or not we've decided to believe it. Through our whole life, you've been good. And so, God, we just decide that with every breath that we're able, we're going to sing of the goodness of God. And with every breath that we're able, we're going to share the portrait of victory that the Master is painting through our lives.